Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. The evening was October 30. The year was 1938. Television was still in its infancy, and so many families gathered around radios for their evening's entertainment. On that particular evening, as families gathered around their radios and began to listen to the broadcast, there was a growing sense of alarm and fear. Much of that was because many missed the introduction to the program, but even for those who caught the introduction, the program was so realistic that it struck fear to their hearts. In fact, there were reports of people running in the streets, people planning evacuations, people actually being so fearful that they were overcome physically. The broadcast was a broadcast written by H.G. Wells entitled War of the Worlds. It was a fictional account of Martians invading New Jersey. But it was written in a, a, a genre a style of interrupting programming to announce what was happening. And as they made these announcements with no commercial interruption, people got increasingly frightened. They were frightened because they missed one key word. It was a word that had to do with this. That's a word we don't use all the time in everyday lingo. But a lot of us understand what it is. A genre is a style, a form of telling a story, of writing a missive, of composing a document. At the beginning of that program, whether they used this actual word or not, they made clear that the genre was fiction. This is not really happening. This is not really true. It's dramatized. But for the people who either overlooked it or missed it, it struck fear to their hearts. It underlines the reality that if we're going to understand the intent of whatever it is that we're reading, viewing, or listening to, we need to be alert to this thing called genre. Rosemary Nixon, biblical scholar, writes this, the Word of God in Jesus Christ cannot be contained in any one kind of literary form. Holy Scripture makes use of many different kinds of literature, poetry, narrative, letter, genealogy, court records, liturgy. Just as there is no single form of literature to express the rich diversity of human culture, so no one single literary form is adequate to give full expression to God's Word. Together, these different literary forms testify to the precious spiritual bread and water of life. Even as the heaven of heavens cannot contain Him, so neither can our different modes of human literature and expression. Now, it's not always the case, but at times even Scripture makes clear right at the outset of a book, what exactly is going to happen? I mean, just consider a few of these very quickly. We start book, Song of Solomon, in the second verse with these words, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. That tells you something about what's to follow. 
you're hopefully going to read that a bit differently than you would read Revelation. <laughs> or what about this one? Deuteronomy 1.1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. And what follows is a series of sermons covering the travels that they have made. Or what about Genesis? In the beginning, God. Right away it tells us this has to do with beginnings. And when you set it in the full context, you have two sets of fours. You have creation, fall, flood, and nations. And that sets the context for the reality of the world. And then you have four people that tells the story of God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's Genesis, that book of beginnings. Or what about Proverbs? Begin simply by saying this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So you know what follows is Proverbs, pithy wisdom statements. A couple more. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus. You know, immediately this is a letter, an epistle. And then the one we looked at a little while ago, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have clearly been fulfilled among us and we are into the gospel. Different genres, at times introduced in a way that helps us think about how we're going to read it. It becomes very important to understand something about genre because the different kinds of genre will read differently and will follow different guidelines in order to understand the message that is being communicated. So I hope you have been taking seriously our assignment to read the Gospel of Luke, either read it through each week or read it a couple of, if you're a little let, willing to take on a little bit less of an endeavor, read a couple of chapters a week. If you've been doing that, you've no doubt read Luke 16 that contains two parables that are puzzling parables. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read those two parables and then take some time to talk about genre overall, ending up with this genre called parable in trying to sort out what these mean. So we go to Luke, the 16th chapter. We've just come out of the chapter when Jesus has told the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And now in Luke 16, 1, this is what it says. Then Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about? You give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called to each one of his master's debtor. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Is this Jesus on a bad day? What in the world does that mean? What are you teaching your followers? But he's not through yet. 
Some verses later, same chapter, second parable. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him and said, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son... Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be converted or convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What in the world? Jesus' teaching? Immediate paradise or immediate torment? Is he teaching the poor are saved, the rich are lost? Is he teaching we'll be able to converse back and forth? What kind of heaven is that? What is he teaching? So we go back to the question of genre. We're going to look at some of the most common genres in Scripture and just a few quick hits about what to bear in mind as we seek to read them. We'll end up with parables. We'll come back to those. But let's start with another one. Let's start out with narrative because the Bible is a grand story and there is much that is contained in the narrative of Scripture. Now, it will depend who you read as to what, get include, what gets included in this. Certainly Old Testament narrative. Maybe New Testament narrative, such as the book of Acts as well. What are we to remember when we come to narrative? Because it's the stories of Scripture. The first thing I would say, they are not allegories. Don't allegorize. So we're going to cross that out. They're not allegories meaning we don't assign a meaning to each piece in the story and come up with something that is, in a real sense, foreign to the story. They're not allegories. We have to bear that in mind. They're not stories with a moral lesson tacked on at the end. They're not that. So, boys and girls, because of that, be sure you always keep your sling by your side because you never know when there's a giant out there. Be ready. They're not that either they are stories of god's work with his people the way at times his people are faithful the way at times they fail but we take them as they are and as they're told with that principle of god acting in his people in mind and at the end of the day what we're looking for whether it be in the narratives of scripture or in any other 
part of Scripture that we consider is units of thought. Units of thought. So what would the unit of thought be in a narrative? It is typically a scene or an entire story. In other genres of Scripture, we will see that sometimes a unit of thought is much, much smaller. But in stories, a unit of thought may be the entire scene that may unfold over a chapter or two or three chapters. And we have to take all of that into account. It's the grand story of God with his people, and we look for units of thought as we try to understand what is being said. What about another genre of Scripture? This one, the Psalms. One of the most important things to remember about the Psalms is that the Psalms are the prayers and the songs of God's people. This is where we get their heart on full display. The breadth of human emotion, experience of questions, of praise, of anger, of guilt, of shame. Their prayers, their songs. And so we have to interpret language. We have to interpret terms. We need to be careful about building doctrine just on a song. I'm not saying it doesn't contain that, but be careful. Even when we sing, if we were to stand up here with the choir today and we were to sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We understand that we're using language in a way that is, that is hyperbolic. We're not saying, I need a thousand tongues. Not 999, not a thousand and one. I need a thousand. No. We're saying, if I knew every language in the world, that would not be sufficient for the worship of God. So we need to interpret the language. And the units of thought would be stanzas. And at times, if it's a shorter song, would be maybe the entire song itself. We look at those to understand what is this section of Scripture saying. And then what about wisdom? Wisdom literature. Wisdom literature like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. Again, we have to remember, first of all, that Proverbs are not promises. Sometimes they get read that way. But they're not promises. Proverbs are wisdom statements, pithy statements from Solomon and others that say when one lives one's life and when one makes one's decisions according to divine wisdom, this is the way life tends to turn out. And they need to be interpreted in that way. So what is the unit of thought? Well, it's either individual proverbs or Proverbs that are joined together by commonality of theme. So sometimes it's an individual proverb, and as you read down that chapter, you see these proverbs really aren't connected together. And so it's each one is its unit of thought. But sometimes you'll read a number of verses all together. Go to the ant, you lazy person, consider her ways and be wise. And then it goes on and unpacks those realities. It's that entire unit of thought. That's how you interpret it. And then what about the prophets? One of the more challenging sections of Scripture. The Old Testament prophets, major prophets, 
minor prophets. They're messages that will at times scald the hair off a dog, honestly. They are so powerful, so potent, so strong. At times they feel so angry that you think, what in the world does this mean? The first thing I would encourage is to remember what we talked about last week with reference to distance. Distance. The distance between that world and this one. There's a temptation to simply import the message and to spew it on all of us here when our context may be dramatically different than was the context of the prophet's world. So how do we get to that? This is one of the places I'll say get a good Bible commentary to read the history, to read the setting, to understand the place in which it is happening. And then, having understood that, the prophet's words will be much more, not just meaningful, but relevant. And then you become able to translate it into our day and time based on the principle that was at play in what the prophet said. But again, the question is, what would the unit of thought be? The unit of thought typically are individual prophecies or scenes that are portrayed by the prophet. So sometimes that can be a few verses long. Sometimes it can be a chapter or two long. When you get into some of those prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel, sometimes it's a very extended piece that is a unit of thought that the prophet is seeking to communicate to a certain group of people. There's one more piece of that. When we hear that term prophet, we tend to think somebody who's predicting the future. That was not a primary part of the prophet's work. A primary part of the prophet's work was to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness, to following God in, in faithful ways with integrity before him. That was a primary element in what the prophet did. So in each case, as we're reading the different genres of Scripture, one of our key questions is, what is the unit of thought that I need to consider here? In other words, what are the boundaries of the passage I'm considering? So narrative, it's probably the scene or story. Psalm, it's, it's a stanza or maybe the whole song. Wisdom, it's individual proverbs or commonality of thought. And prophets, it's scenes or prophecies. But now we come over to the New Testament. We start asking questions about the genres in the New Testament. Immediately, we're into the Gospels. Now, I've said a bit about the Gospels, so I don't want to go over that same terrain here, but I will very briefly remind you that the Gospels are theologies, not chronologies. Bear that in mind. Theologies, not chronologies. Each gospel writer is trying to paint a picture of Jesus that will help a certain group of people who are the most likely to read that gospel understand something about why this Jewish rabbi from Galilee speaks into their life and world. So they each write in a very spirit-inspired and thoughtful way the life of Jesus. 
but you find differences. And so because of that, one of the things you want to do is you want to think horizontally. First of all, you spend your time on what it is that this unique gospel is saying about Jesus. But once you get that sense, this is what Luke is saying. Then you want to ask, okay, horizontally, Matthew, Mark, and John, do they treat the same material? Do they tell the same story? In what ways are they the same? In what ways are they different? That can give you insights into what each is saying. Now, here's a curious reality about the Gospels. Just for a sense of how much unique material is in each one and how much shared content is in each one, consider this simple little chart comparing the four Gospels. This is drawn from Eerdmann's Bible Dictionary. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. So Mark, unique material, about 7%. Shared material, about 93%. Skip down to John. Unique material, 92%. Shared material, 8%. And Matthew and Luke, are somewhere in the middle, which tells you if you're reading Mark, you're going to get a lot of shared content. If you're going to read John, you're going to, going to get a lot of unique content. And if you're reading Mark and Matthew and Luke, you're going to get a fair bit of shared content. So reading horizontally then can give you something of an insight into exactly what might be said and why in the story each one tells. It's a genre of Scripture. Now, the book of Acts, some break it out into its own genre, some include it in the narrative genre. So let's go to the epistles. The epistles, they make up a fairly significant part of the New Testament. They are the letters written by people like Paul primarily, but also Peter and James and John, others of whom we're not exactly certain, like who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, for example. There's a great deal of discussion about who that was. But epistles, what you have to remember with epistles is that epistles are kind of like a one-sided, let's see if I can get the spelling right here, a one-sided phone conversation. You've listened to your spouse, your parent on the phone, you get a pretty good sense of what's happening, but you're not 100% sure because you're not hearing the other person and what they have to say. Sometimes the epistles have been referred to as occasional documents. When that term is used, what is meant is that they were occasioned by something. There was an occasion that created the need for that letter to be written. Because they are occasional documents, it becomes extremely important to do anything we can to understand the context of what occasioned that letter. What was it that was happening in the churches in Galatia or in the church in ancient Thessalonica or to John's community that caused Paul or John to sit down and under the inspiration of the Spirit to write those letters? If we understand the occasion, it becomes more natural to understand the content of what's being written. Now, again, we go to units of thought. I forgot to put this one up here. 
But in this one, you will have a variety of units of thought. You'll have scenes in the Gospels. You'll have stories in the Gospels. Those kinds of things will be the units of thought. When you're reading the epistles, it's probably best to think paragraphs. Paragraphs. These are much more didactic. You can get a better sense of what it is that's unfolding if paragraph by paragraph you're following the writer's thinking. What brought this to be? And now writing into that, what exactly is the writer saying? So epistles. There are, I mean, 13 epistles just written by Paul alone, which is a significant number. And then we come to a very perplexing and bewildering genre of Scripture, and that is apocalyptic. That can be sections of Ezekiel, sections of Daniel, not all, but most of Revelation. So what is it that's true about apocalyptic? The first thing that's true is that this is a highly symbolic kind of writing. The symbolism likely grows out of the fact that apocalyptic rose out of periods of time of threat and of persecution, of uncertainty. God's people, in a sense, were on their heels. And then comes this vision. Then comes this writing, which is highly symbolic to help protect some of the message, but to do so in a way that God's people will understand. The symbolism becomes challenging to us maybe 2,000 years later. So one of the things that we want to do is to hold our conclusions rather lightly, to hold them carefully. I have seen even in recent times people with absolute and definitive revelations and interpretations of what this means, and I've seen them be wrong over and over again. As Adventists, we ought to understand that. Hold them somewhat lightly. But as we hold them lightly, what we also want to do is we want to keep the big picture in mind. So what is the big picture? The big picture is what we have typically called a great controversy between Christ and Satan. This battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. That's the big picture of what's unfolding in apocalyptic literature. And in that battle, there's the side of light, of right, of love. That is God. In whatever agents God chooses to use at different periods of time in earth's history. On the other side of that is the side of darkness that always uses deceit, that is customized, customarily identified by creating havoc and then pointing to God. He did it. He did it. He did it in whatever disguise that enemy may come. So you have to bear in mind that bigger picture. And you have to say, okay, if this is God, if this is the Lamb, it's not going to conflict with who Jesus was here. This will help guide me in understanding this. And again, the units of thought over here will be things like the scenes as the scenes move and unfold and change or prophecies 
those sections of Scripture, you will want to try to slow down and break down to understand them one at a time. Apocalyptic. And the last one, parable. Our Scripture reading this morning, you notice that it said, Jesus didn't speak to them without using a parable. Now, we need to be careful with parables. We don't want to, and I'm going to say the same thing over here that I did about narrative over there. We do not want to allegorize unless the text gives us permission to do so, which on certain rare occasions it does. So what do I mean by that? Let me give you maybe the best example of all. St. Augustine, in a period of time when allegory was very common in the interpretation of biblical literature, took the parable of the Good Samaritan and allegorized it. So what did that mean? It meant he said each segment, each incident, each person in this parable stands for something. So this is the kind of thing Augustine did with it. The wounded man was Adam. Jerusalem was the heavenly city. Jericho was the moon, symbol of immortality. The thieves were the devil and his angels. They stripped the man of his immortality by persuading him to sin, thus leaving him spiritually half dead. The priest and Levite were the Old Testament. The Samaritan was Christ. The donkey was his flesh, which he assumed at the incarnation. The inn was the church. The innkeeper was the apostle Paul. And at some point along there, you say, where in the world do you see that in the text? Because by the end of it, while there is a very fanciful way to interpret the parable, what is lost sight of is that the parable was about one thing. And that one thing was, who is my neighbor? That's the one thing. And that's an important piece to remember about parables, is that they commonly have one lesson or one point, commonly. And then secondly, that that one point, we're thinking of units of thought now, think punchline, punchline. That one thought will often come near or at the end. So be careful not to do what Augustine did to assign all of these different meanings to every different element in the parable, read it for what it says, and then listen for the lesson, the punchline that comes near or at the end. Now, I realize we've covered a lot of ground. It can be overwhelming. The point primarily is remember that genre affects how we read. And you're looking for units of thought that will help you understand what is being said and paying attention to a few things like with parable, the punchline, which brings us back around again to those two parables in Luke's gospel, the 16th chapter. What in the world, Jesus? So the guy says, I'm being fired. Okay, how much do you owe? Okay, well, that's half forgiven. How much do you owe? Okay, well, that's... And then Jesus says he was commended for what he did. Because the children of this generation are wiser with their own than are the children of light. So some have said simply this. Jesus is drawing a good lesson 
from a bad example. A good lesson from a bad example. And that what he's saying is, look at what happens when somebody with no ethical fiber, no moral scruples, finds out that his future is compromised. When he finds out his future is compromised, he will do anything he needs to to secure his future. So, learn a lesson. If somebody here in this world is willing to do anything necessary to take care of a temporal future, how much more should you be willing to do anything necessary to secure your eternal future? A good lesson from a bad example. Or what about that other one? Dip your finger in water, touch my tongue with it, the torment is horrible. Maybe a simple quote from a commentary written by Clinton Arnold will be helpful. You remember how that ends. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Here's what Arnold says. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, they would not believe. The statement is a veiled reference to the religious leaders who are presently rejecting the scriptural prophecies concerning the Messiah and who will continue to reject him even if he rises from the dead. So what the parable is saying is, surely, if you'll do something dramatic and miraculous, they'll be saved. And Jesus is saying, if they don't believe what's already written, I could arise from the dead, and they still won't believe. So what if we joined those together and tried to apply them to our series? Could I homiletically say this? Be willing to expend as much energy in understanding this book as you expend understanding the news and sports and your profession. Be willing to expend as much energy to do this as you do to do that. Because in the final analysis, if you don't believe this, every other thing in the world will not be sufficient to convince you. So, because of that, we want to hear what it is that the Spirit says to us. So I'm going to invite you to sing with me, to sing with me. One verse, a second verse of a song we sang earlier in this series. Open my ears that I...
gracious God, that is our prayer. Open our ears that we may hear. Open our eyes that we may see. Make us as diligent about eternity as we are about the temporal world. Let us see in your word that on which we will stake our faith that no matter what may come, we will walk with you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.